Welcome and thanks for listening to the Spirit of Time podcast. It's a spirited discussion of watch topics and some of the cool bon vivant stuff that overlaps our hobby, especially fine spirits, craft beer, cocktails, and wine. In other words, if it's boozy, smoky, sudsy, or smooth, we'll probably talk about it. Think of it as a watch-focused happy hour for your commute. We are your hosts. I am Matt. I'm Greg. Thanks for listening and enjoy the episode. All right, Greg, I think we are recording. How are you doing, buddy? Things are going well over here, doing great. Uh, Another sunny Friday. We have carved aside our time to catch up and talk. I think we have a really, really interesting and fun episode in front of us today. So um, everything's everything's looking up. Cool, man. Well, yeah, this is definitely going to be, you know, we talk about watches and spirits, and this is going to be more spirit forward today, which is cool. Our last episode was definitely more like watch heavy with Mike Heyman talking about that previously unknown flown Movado space watch, which is really cool. Unbelievable time talking to him, getting the inside scoop on how that story came together and made its way over to, to Cole uh, Pennington and, and the Hodinkee folks. And it was just really neat, really neat to hear that backstory, but just also a new piece, a new wrinkle to uh, a piece of watch history. Yeah, absolutely. Well, dude, you've got, uh, I think a little bit of uh, travel under your belt in the past week or two, don't you? I did. You know, we last spoke uh, about a, last week and I had just gotten back, but I didn't get a chance to share what I was up to. Um, we were back in Philadelphia visiting family and uh, did an in-person get together. How fun was that? Uh, something that not many of us have done, at least, you know, it, with a, a lot of um, a lot of folks over the last, you know, whatever, 15 months, 16 months. So, um you know, did some travel. I brought a couple of four-handers with me. Uh, the quintessential, in my opinion, travel watch, my GMT Master II. Uh, despite what the watches and whiskey guys say, I think it's absolutely uh, the right piece to take with you, of course, depending on on the situation. And um, also had the Oris with me, which a few friends had not seen yet. So uh, those were the two pieces I brought with me. And I was just catching up on podcasts on the way home and and realize that everybody's sort of in the, the vacation watch talk, right? What are you going to bring with you? How many? Which one's the right one? And so kind of had me thinking about the the mental gymnastics I went through um, when I did that. Yeah, I think that's one of the weird symptoms of being in our hobby. How many people actually consider stuff like that? Is that, <laughs> talk about first world problems, but I do the same thing. I'm like, okay, what am I going to bring on vacation? Do I bring a second watch? Is it going to be a plastic watch? What do I do? Um, yeah. Well, hey, I'm really What's glad new in to your hear world, that. by the way. Oh, well, you know, it's honestly not a lot. Um, that last episode was a bear to put together in terms of, uh, you know, getting all the episodes, the, I should say the editing done for that episode. Um, but other than that, not, not a lot, brother. My kids started uh, summer vacation today. Like, actually, I take that back. Yesterday was their first full day. So that's kind of nice for them. Um, but now I just got to get them programmed for the summer. And that's about it. Nothing new watch stuff. No news is good news sometimes. Yeah, totally. Well, hey, why don't we turn this over and you lead us into kind of our main topic is we've got a guest patiently waiting. We do. And he's a special guest. Um, I had mentioned on last week's pod that I had some really, I thought I considered very special and intimate dining slash spirits tasting experiences 
both in uh, here in LA when we landed back home, but also in Philadelphia. And I gave a shout out to the Tequila's family um, in in Philadelphia. And, and I mentioned I was with somebody very special. And so that brings me to who we have with us today, uh, Jason from Mission 1530. Jason, welcome to the pod. Thanks for having me, guys. This is incredible. Such a fun um, uh, episode in front of us. A lot to talk about. Um, for those of you who who maybe are just learning, who you know more about Jason, he is a notable uh, tequila enthusiast and advocate. And he and I met through a mutual love of tequila and Philadelphia. And so, you know, his passion has grown into something I think even bigger than he could have ever imagined, which we're really excited to talk more about. And on top of all of that, which makes this even kind of more unique, I think, to to the pod, he's also a watch enthusiast. So it's going to be really fun to hear about what that means to him and and uh, kind of his his watch uh, collecting through through time. So, um, Jason, thanks so much. How are you? How's Philadelphia? I'm doing well. It's actually cool here today and raining, which is a Welcome from the 90 degrees and humid that we've been suffering through. So I was, I was commiserating with Jason, Matt, as we were there, they, I think they had about two weeks of, of, uh, nine, you know, sun, sun, and it was quite hot and not a lot of rain. We came in and and promptly got about four days of of 60 degree weather and thunderstorms. My wife was, was none too pleased. Yeah, it's nice. Uh, I think we do get you know, spoiled by the weather here in Southern California. And sometimes you forget even, you know, well, I guess probably most of the rest of the country actually has real weather after June, including rain and, you know, sometimes uh, cold snaps and that sort of thing. For us, it's pretty monotonous. Anyway, enough about the weather. Let's talk about booze. Well, I figure a great place to start is maybe a little bit of a wrist check and a, and a port check if that works for everybody. So as our guest of honor, Jason, what, what's on your wrist and, and what's in your glass? I actually think we, we all might have something similar in our glass, but let's start with you. So on my wrist is the first luxury watch that I ever bought, a Blanc Pond flyback uh, that I bought close to 20 years ago. Um, it's something that I love to wear uh, and it just means a lot to me because it was my first introduction into uh, into watches. So what I have on my wrist and I have some bad ombre in my glass. So couldn't ask for a better start to a Friday night. No, that is, that is the way to do it. Matt, how about you? Well, first of all, congratulations on breaking the mold. Um, I think other than me, you're the first person that's had a Blanc Pond. Not that this podcast has hundreds of episodes or anything, but I'm sorry. I love that brand. I love that you wore that watch today. Is it the, um, I'm going to geek out for a second. Is it the, uh, the Le Mans flyback chronograph? Yep. Nice. Yeah, that's um, such a such a nice watch. Very understated and a great piece. I periodically I toy with the idea of adding one of those. But to answer your question, Greg, today I have. I don't know if you guys can see this, but this is the uh, the Tudor Black Bay GMT. But I've got this off of the bracelet and on a. Um, I think this is a Cincy Strapco uh, NATO, and it's kind of an interesting. I don't know what the the term for it is, but it's like the um, U.S. Navy, like the WEPS jackets that the Naval and Marine Corps aviators wear. It's that sort of shiny finish. Uh, it's not like a seatbelt strap, but it's that shiny finish nylon. And it's kind of a light olive drab with like a gray undertone. Ooh, Just really good cool. Combo. It's got all the normal, normal hardware. I have not yet taken the step of, um, you know, giving this strap its uh, neutering snip. Um, so it's still, you know, a, a two layer, maybe I'll get to that eventually. I've done that 
over time with most of mine. And in terms of what's in the glass, I also have the bad ombre. So I have not even put this to my nose yet. So we're going to all do this together. It's going to be cool. Amazing. Amazing. I have on, so I'll give you a little, uh, behind the scenes. Jason texted me just before we were getting on and he sent me a picture of the Blanc Pond and, and I was going to tell Matt, cause I was like, he's going to be so excited. And I'm like, no, I'm just going to wait. And he was going to see it on the, on the, and we're going to talk about it. And he's going to be so excited. So that's funny. I have on, you know, and I, I, re- I responded to Jason when he, when he gave me that little behind the, you know, preview, uh, that I was wearing my, my, my GMT master too. Um, Partly because I was I was convinced that Jason was going to be wearing Rolex today. I know he's got a, a diverse collection and a lot of things that he's into, but um, I was just trying to, to to forecast where I think he was going to go with that. And, and I hadn't actually worn it myself since we came home, so it felt like the right time to do it. And uh, and on not on just on my wrist, I'm going to do kind of a, a, a you know a clothing check here, which we don't do often. We don't talk about gear a lot, but I have the uh, the bad ombre T-shirt that went out, and I think Jason will share more about how, who got this and, and why they got it. But, um, and I, I hope he might talk about the company. I think he referenced it before. This is, might be the softest, nicest t-shirt I have put on in some time. This thing is absolutely incredibly soft. Well, that's good to hear. I'll definitely give them a plug if that's okay. Absolutely. So. Please do. And in my glass is also the bad ombre. You can sense a theme here. And what we're going to do, I think is kick this off with, um, you know, a, a joint, you know, um, cheers or a salute of, uh, of bad ombre and talk about what that is in the glass and let Jason maybe go a little bit deeper into that, which is what we're all here to do. So with that gentlemen, cheers. Cheers. Here's to you. Mm. So everybody's aware, uh, in Matt, Matt's glass and in my glass is the bad ombre bottled in May of 2020, which Jason was kind enough to share with me. Um, later on, we're going to get into another iteration of bad ombre. And so, you know, with that, Jason, uh, and, and jump in, Matt, Jason, anybody with tasty notes or thoughts? I mean, this is uh, absolutely sure. outstanding. Well, let me, I'll describe what I think the tasting notes are for bad ombre. So bad ombre is a six and a half year extra añejo with a base of Siempre Azul, uh, Nam 1414 Blanco that I bought in 2000 and. 14. Um, it's been sitting in the barrel. I've sampled it along the way, but I felt when I started to bottle it that I didn't want it to become too oak heavy. So Matt, if you tasted it for the first time, you'll definitely get a forward. You'll get a little bit of a burn in the beginning. Uh, you'll get mediocre oak with some vanilla and some caramel, but I didn't feel that it lost the true nature of the Blanco. And I felt if it would have lasted, if I would have aged it a little bit longer, I would have lost that. So that's my tasting notes are oak, vanilla, caramel, and still you get a little bit of that heat, a little bit of cayenne, which I like. So, yeah, there's some heat, I'm, I'm not just the alcohol. And I'm serving this probably just below room temperature. So, I mean, it might be slightly different, a little bit cooler, you know, when it's not quite as volatile. Nose is really interesting, um, but that. I, what I found up front was like you said, there's that heat, a little bit of that bite, but when I keep this kind of, you know, just in the mouth and on the palate for an extra two or three seconds, especially at the front of my mouth, I'm getting like this, almost like a candied sweetness. It's um, not something I've ever tasted in a tequila or mezcal before. And I'm, by the way, I'm a complete like newbie to, um, like the, the mezcal based spirits. So 
I don't have a ton of experience, but this is a really, really interesting. I love the color on this. This is like a, a what a cool project. I was very fortunate to, so I, the man behind this uh, that I have to give a lot of credit to is David Soro. Uh, he is the owner of Siempre Azul uh, Tequila, Siempre Valles Tequila, which is, so Siempre Azul is a Highland tequila produced at NAM 1414. Siempre Valles is a lowland tequila produced at NAM 1123 at Cascoin. Uh, David and I have been friends for over 20 years. Uh, he's also been a mentor to me. And on my 40th birthday, I had asked him if I could buy his tequila and, and age it. And he, the, the barrel that you see behind me is the barrel that he gave to me. And I put the 22 cases of his Blanco tequila in there. Um, when COVID hit and I saw the impact that it was making on the restaurant industry uh, in Philadelphia, David and I had been talking a lot. Uh, and he, he was talking about the impact that, that COVID had on the restaurant industry. But we also got into the impact that uh, mass producers, that celebrity tequila, that, that um, for-profit tequila companies were having on the tequila industry. And it, it was an overwhelming moment for me. I was seeing a friend who was you know, drastically impacted by, by COVID. And I was seeing an industry that I love that's been impacted prior to COVID and, and is impacted on an ongoing basis. After a couple conversations, uh, this is how the origin of Bad Ombre came about. I decided, I told David that I wanted to do something to really impact the tequila industry and hopefully impact um, companies that were local to us as well. And we came up with the concept of why don't I donate um, bottles of Bad Ombre in exchange for donations to the Tequila Interchange Project. And what the Tequila Interchange Project is, it is a conglomerate of bartenders, scientists, historians, uh, tequila producers, uh, and tequila lovers that have come together to form this foundation to protect the history of tequila and agave spirits, to protect the, to fight for environmental and cultural change in an industry that is being just ravished by greed and uh, greed and and a and a lack of respect for for an industry that it goes goes back generations and hundreds of years and a lot of short sightedness. Yep. Um, well, yeah, I, you know, um, I think you're doing a great job because you've actually like I've got two or three questions and you just um, essentially answered them before I even asked. But one of the things I was wondering is just this just popped into my head. So bear with me. I'm going to try to articulate this as best I can. I think, you know, among wine consumers here in in the Western world in the United States, there's a certain amount of romance to wine production you know, where people have this idea of what it is. And and to a certain extent, it's that's largely true. But, it, you know, we think of like, okay, how are, how is land managed, you know, in, especially in North America. So, you know, that's going to be like Oregon, Washington, California, New York, um, and now pretty much every other state, but those are the biggies. And, you know, you, there's some transparency in terms of, you know, where the fruit is coming from, how it's produced, um, 
you know, it might not be super easy to research for a layman, but I mean, if you want, you can go to Napa Valley. It's not hard and you can, you know, cruise around or you can go to the central coast in, in California and you can see a lot of this, but we as consumers of tequila, um, you don't really get to see any of that stuff. I think it's all kind of left to the imagination. There's not a lot of, uh, you know, not a lot of books or, um, you know, documentaries or movies or anything that bring really the realities of tequila production and mezcal production and the harvesting of the the plants and and that sort of thing. And I'm curious, can you kind of open open the box on that a little bit? What are some of the concerns that you know somebody ha- would have if they knew more about how things really work in the industry behind the scenes? I think the ultimate way to truly understand things or to actually visit Guadalajara to go to one of the producers that uh, have joined with me in this the Mission 1530 TIP project and see for yourself. If you go to, whether it's Cascawin, if you go to Fortaleza, um, to where Tequila Ocho is produced, or to Siempre Valles or where Siempre Azul is, you will see, let's start first with the generations of quimadores that have worked for these distilleries for generations. So the first part is you are, you are by buying tequila produced in a traditional manner by the right producers, you are supporting generations of families that have worked in the industry. Now let's compare that to celebrity tequila and mass producers. If you walk into one of the uh, major tequila producers that I'm not going to name their name because I don't I don't feel it's appropriate to name their name, but you'll we see. We can think a, of a few. <laughs> Use your imagination. Yeah, it's it's. I'd rather not throw anybody under the bus, but yeah. if you look at the the well tequila in any good bar you go to, you're going to see these mass producers there. You're going to see them advertised during the Super Bowl and everything else because they have all this money behind them. If you walk into their distilleries, you won't see a human being. You will see machines and you'll see chemicals and you will see the digi-economy way of producing tequila, which is to automate and profit from it. Um, Just everything inside of me tells me that that's wrong. Um, I'm a third generation lawyer, so I believe in supporting generations through and through. Um, So by choosing to support the right producers, you're supporting generations of families. But what you're also doing is you're taking the, uh, the, the pollution that the machines cause, the pollution that the chemical cause causes to actually manufacture this Blanco tequila that I wouldn't even be considered, I wouldn't even consider Blanco tequila. So now if you switch back to these traditional producers, they harvest ripe agaves, which means your harvest, that sweetness that you tasted was because the base of it came from a mature agave, which at this point is anywhere from five and a half years to 10 years. But when that tequila was produced into a Blanco, on average, it was eight to 12 years. So this brings me to the second point, which is mass production, celebrity greed has made the agave plant uh, a commodity that is not affordable for everyone now because the big producers have to 
mass market, mass produce this tequila and are buying immature agave plants, injecting them with acid to release the sugars and steaming them. So what you're getting is a Blanco tequila that's basically like water and chemicals. And then you add additives and sweeteners to it to get it to be taste like a traditionally made Blanco tequila. So environmentally, by not supporting these traditional producers, you are supporting these manufacturers of chemicals and machines that are giving you chemically laced product that will definitely um, attract you to the product because you're going to get a lot of caramel, a lot of vanilla, um, a lot of sweetness. But if something tastes more like a soda than a tequila, you know, something's wrong with it. And I, I always use, I always, when someone is not a tequila enthusiast, but understands wine or understands bourbon or some other, uh, some other great spirit for a wine enthusiast, I'll say if they micro microwaved the grapes that went into your wine, do you think they would taste good? Absolutely not. Right. Yeah. No, they would have to add chemicals to give it that butteriness or to give it that, uh, the dryness or the, the tobacco, the, the tobacco or the dark chocolate flavors that you enjoy in a traditionally produced wine. The same adage applies to tequila. That's a great um, point, Jason. You know, I think you hit a few things that, and, and Matt had mentioned earlier, sort of the romantic romanticization of the wine industry, and the same thing happens in tequila. You know, if you go to a place like Jason's describing, kind of this big agro uh, mass producer, you're going to see a hemador dressed in this beautifully pressed white, you know, quote unquote traditional. Uh, attire. He's got, you know, horaches on his feet and he's got a koa and he, he does one piña for, you know, a group of tourists. That's not the Hemador lifestyle, which I think Jason might get into a little bit later on when talking about supporting these, these communities. But again, it's this romanticizing, you know, romanticizing key elements of a particular industry in this. And, and of course, we're talking about spirits and wine and things like that. And, um, and I think Jason's going to touch on it probably to more depth too, but as he's talking about some of these different processes that these larger, um, producers use there's there's nomenclature that helps you kind of navigate this but essentially you know the worst of the worst which i think we're, we're sort of talking about you know beating around the bush are, are things called diffusers and some of these other large mass producing um you know extraction devices where they're basically instead of cooking instead of cooking the agave and, and as these traditional producers do that jason's going to be describing and working with um and that we talk about supporting you know, instead of cooking it in essentially a, a, an oven, a brick oven, you know, you're, 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 you're basically running it through, you know, a chemical bath and extract. I mean, it's, you know, of course, a more uh, efficient way to extract the most amount of, of sugars, but it's not what we talk about when we're talking about craft spirits. Uh, diffusers are the number one detriment to the tequila industry. And, and the perfect example is my introduction to tequila was my first year in law school, I went to Tequila's restaurant, which was in a different location. And I had Herradora. I had a Blanco from Herradora that changed my life. And that was prior to them going to diffusers. And I, I, drinking that Blanco was like an awakening of my senses of what alcohol, which I called it back then, just alcohol could be like. 
vodka didn't taste that way. Bourbon didn't taste that way. Nothing had that sweetness, Matt, that you sensed when you tasted the bad ombre. And that all gets back to harvesting mature agave plants, um, baking them, cooking them in an oven for 48 to 72 hours, not taking a, a small pina and injecting it with sulfuric acid to release the sugars and mixing it with water and then glycerin. And I mean, I'll, I'll name one brand. Example of that for them to have grown like they did to supply every bar and every, every liquor store with their tequila, they could not have, they can't make it the most traditional way. And I believe that they are mass producing it with diffusers. They're adding glycerin and, and additives to it to make it taste good. I was, at a restaurant right down the street uh, called the Spiced Finch. And I had ordered, they had Siempre Azul Reposado, which is David, David released it very recently. It is so smooth and so delicious. And I had, it was buried in the corner. And I said, it's the tequila that's buried in the corner. Casamigos was up front. Espelon was up front. Uh, another uh, major brand was up front. I said, please don't give me any of those. Please give me the, the one that you have in the corner, which is your best tequila here. They brought me over a, a, a dark colored tequila. I take, I took one sip of it, vanilla and caramel and sweetness. And I said, please take this back. What you gave me was, and I'm not going to drink chemicals. And I had to send it back. It's bartenders and, and people in the industry, people in the beverage industry, get so many promotional tools for these mass producers, these celebrity producers, it, it's hard for them to ignore and, and hard for them to not put these mass produced tequilas right in front of you. We are programmed to look at the top shelf. We're programmed to look at the second shelf because we get easy access to everything these days. And these big brands have the money to go to the top shelf, to go to the second shelf, and we have, as consumers that love tequila, we have to start looking below the second shelf because the best tequilas normally are on the second, third, and fourth shelf because they don't pump all the money into their advertising. They pump it into creating a great product. So, so with yeah, that, makes Jason, sense. what, what, uh, there's an education piece to this, right? Of course, there's a, um, kind of an advocacy component to it. What? What, in your words, what are you trying to accomplish now? So we know where Bad Ombre originated. Uh, we've refer- we, we've talked a few times about Mission Fifteen Thirty. Um, what what is Mission Fifteen Thirty, and what are you trying and hoping to accomplish? So Bad Ombre was to raise money for the Tequila Interchange Project to help them start a legal team and to get the ball rolling on writing legislation to change some issues with the industry. But I didn't want to stop there. I wanted this to be a living, growing thing. So David had reached out to several producers, to Carlos Camarena, to Chava Rosales, to Guillermo Erickson, um, about me funding a new project where I team with these four of the world's best producers to create four expressions of tequila to sell nationwide and for the net profit from that to go to the tequila interchange project to make the tequila interchange project a powerhouse for the agave spirit industry so that they can make a difference both in the Mexican government 
in the for the environmental causes of Jalisco and for the families of the Hemadors. And it was, I was astonished that after one phone call, literally four of the most respected families in Tequila said yes without a moment's notice. And to be clear, that's uh, Tequila Fortaleza, uh, Tequila Ocho, uh, Cascoween, and Siembra Azul. Vias. Um, wait, I think it's, yeah, it's Siempre Vias because it's the high proof that we put in one of the barrels. That's right. That's right. So David and I uh, worked on securing, so I've always been fascinated with the barrel influence of tequila. Uh, I, I like bourbon as well. And I think a barrel influence in, in bourbon makes all the difference in the world. And ironically, tequila tequila is usually aged in used bourbon barrels. So there's this nice, nice connection between bourbon and tequila as well. And you can notice it with some of the brands of tequila you drink, a subtle influence of the bourbon that used to be in that barrel. I've always enjoyed, I, I, I enjoy wine. I really enjoy cognac. And cognac gives a, a profound richness, uh, I think, when when you're using their barrel and there's some tequilas that have been aged in cognac before and i love the the influence of that on this beautiful blanco tequila that's been in there so david is friends with a purveyor of uh the the best purveyor of cognac uh, this guy nicholas i called nicholas and i said i'd like to secure the from the finest producer of cognac four of his casks and these cognac casks are now sitting in the four producers, uh, and they are filled with uh, the best Blanco that they have produced. So what you're getting with Mission 1530, what's going to be for sale, what's going to raise more money for the Tequila Interchange Project, are single estate, barrel-aged in the finest cognac barrels in the world for high-proof Blanco tequilas. This has never been done before. These producers have never teamed up to do something like this because it is so important to them to protect the generations of families that have worked for them, to protect the environmental causes that they fight for, and to protect the culture and richness of the agave industry. So this is a, a, a first uh, in the industry, and I am so excited to see what it produces and the effect it has down the road. I was about to ask earlier if this is kind of the equivalent of that, you know, the the push for fair trade with coffee and that sort of thing. But it sounds like your intent is to really go way beyond that even. I want to be one of the people that helps make a real difference in an industry that I absolutely love. You know, it, you're, you're both right. And I actually want to piggyback again on what Matt said and give Jason even more credit to what he was just saying. Matt, I think what you said, though, is really helpful for people who are newer to the category, right? What we're talking about, I think, and what we talk about on our pod a lot is, right, drink curiously. Don't just sure. drink what's in front of you. Don't just drink what's on the top shelf, like Jason mentioned earlier. What are you drinking? Just like, what are we eating? We, we pay more attention to what we're putting in our bodies these days. Um, and the same should be said about your tequila. And I think that's where Jason's going with this. And then and then a whole nother set of, of, of issues deeper than that. Yeah, absolutely. Jason, can you give me... I 
you know, forgive me if this is off on a tangent. I think I know the answer to this, but I'm guessing that our listeners may or may not. So just in case, but what is the significance of the name itself, Mission 1530? So I'm a... In college, I was a history and government double major, um, <clears throat> and then I was a anthropology minor. So it was important for me to trace a secure date for when the town of Tequila was actually founded. By finding that date, I knew that only traditional methods of making agave spirits at the time were intact at that time. So my mission is to raise money and to make a change in the industry. 1530 is to bring it back old school to the way things were produced back in the day and tip. So it's at mission 1530 T period, I period P tip is the tequila interchange project. So I connect, I tried to make a strong connection to what I was doing and that's how the origin of the name came up. And that's why 1530 is the number. I've seen some hats making their way around in social media and, and maybe the bartender and, and head the bar program manager at Gracias Madre here in LA might've been behind it, but I think he's working with David and it's make tequila mezcal again. And it's yes. kind of what you're talking about, right? Let's bring it all the way back to where, you know, it started, where it should be, hopefully. Yep. I will be launching uh, some t-shirts and hats and other things down the road. I'm working with the producers to uh, get the okay to do that. So Very cool. I think people would really enjoy that. Yeah. Yeah. So if I understand correctly, then the inspiration is, um, you know, your, your personal bottle and for the listeners can't see this, but we're, you know, looking right over your right shoulder on the webcam here, I can see that awesome barrel. And so bad ombre is what essentially what come comes out of that barrel. That is the impetus for, you know, starting, um, and again, help me, it's the uh, tequila interchange. The Tequila Interchange Project. That was yeah. That was yeah. The basis for the first uh, fundraising effort that I did by giving away free bottles of Bad Ombre Barrel One Tequila. So and that and then that in turn gives rise to Mission Fifteen Thirty and all that you hope to accomplish with that. And those those barrels are in Mexico as we speak and are doing doing their thing and hopefully ready at some point in the future. That's going to be awesome. Yeah, it's, I'm, David Soro was down there. He's still down there until the 20th. Uh, and he sent me the CRT labels that are over all my barrels. And I was just, I had tears in my eyes. Like this is, this was a dream come true for me to, to, to be able to contribute to an industry that I love, to people that I, I call good friends now and to see what, I hope to accomplish become a reality. So it was a it was a very proud moment for me. Uh, you should be. That's that's pretty uh, pretty incredible. Um, speaking of of Mexico, you were down not too long ago. Um, yeah. So curious. Tell us about the trip a little bit, if you can, and you know what you accomplished. I know you like you mentioned in your story. You know, and saying earlier, you basically were able to pick up the phone with David and and secure everybody almost, I think, but I think you did accomplish something on your trip down there. Um, what it meant to you and, and maybe when you plan on, on going back down. Yeah. So, uh, in the beginning of April, I was fortunate enough to travel with David to, uh, Jalisco, Mexico. And, uh, we timed it for when my barrels were coming over from France so that I was able to go to each of the producers uh, and deliver the barrels firsthand. Uh, and at the same time, 
meet them in person for the first time, sit down with them and uh, get to know them on a personal level and talk business with them at the same time. And, you know, you know, when you, when you take a vacation, it's hard for you to leave because of the relaxation and, and the time away with the people you love. This was the polar op. This was working every day, 12 hours per day, but with friends that became almost like family. And it was hot. Sometimes it was dusty sometimes, but if I could have stayed down and continued to be down there, but for the fact that I love my family and I want to see them, I would still be down there because that trip was one of the most important trips I have ever taken. I found what, what I didn't get to feel firsthand, I got to experience. And it's something that will forever stay with me. I mean, I Chava Rosales, I met day one when I got down there. He didn't leave our side the entire time. When we went, we went to Fortaleza, when we went to um, La Altenia, Chava was there. Um, everybody's friends. These are competitors of one another that are friendly, that are all out for the same thing to protect the generational accomplishments that they've had for hundreds of years and to present these beautiful tequilas to people around the world and to see everybody interact with this familial type, just love for one another was incredible to me. And, and the other major part of this was we sat and we talked about the project without signing a piece of paper, without, without going through all the formalities that are here in the United States. We drank Blanco tequila. We talked for hours. We shook hands and they filled these barrels. That sounds incredible to me. <laughs> that if, sounds so good. If people in the United States could get over themselves and be trustworthy and be open and honest with each other, we would have a much better foundation for everything. And just seeing how they do things down there was overwhelming. And that's why I will encourage anybody to go down and take a tour of any of these producers. You will get to meet them firsthand and you will see what I'm talking about. You will feel the love that I feel for them. You know, I wonder, you know, Matt and I talk often on the pod about, um, trips in, in general. And then when you taste something or where, whether you're, you have something on your wrist that reminded you of that trip and it kind of brings you back. And I wonder if in some ways these bottles, these single barrels of mission 1530, you know, could do that for certain people kind of bring them back to, you know, the last time they hopefully visited, you know, a distillery down in Jalisco or, or just the memory that they would be, you know, meaningful. I hope that Mission 50, I hope that tequilas produced by these producers for Mission 1530 accomplish that. Yeah. Um, and I, I'll tell you that I'm not going to reveal it now, but um, in several months, um, I, I collaborated with a, another industry on doing as a, as a thank you for all the people that helped get me through this. I think you guys will appreciate it more than anybody. I'm not going to reveal what it is, but um, but I, I will share it when when this under, other industry helps me out with, with with what I'm trying to accomplish. So I'm reading between the lines, and I'm already I'm already looking forward to it a little bit. Yeah, me too. It's so pretty I, cool. 
I so have we some have, guesses. We, yeah, yeah, we have some guesses. We'll take it offline and, and see how close we got. So we have another pour. Um, this is the March 2021 Bad Ombre, yes. in which I, if I understand correctly, would have been probably the end of, would have been the last iteration of Barrel One, essentially. Yeah, so to, and I, I have not filled everybody's orders yet. I still have 29 orders to to fill, but I had to actually tilt the barrel up and my 14-year-old son was holding the the bottles for me to get to fill the last orders. So this is this is the bottom of the barrel, which I consider the best part. Um, it is a a richer, more fuller version of of the previous bottling. Um, it's a little too oak forward for me at this point. I feel it, it lost some of the identity of the blanco at this point. And so what I'm you know now with my second barrel, which is filled with Tequila Ocho, I don't think I'm going to let it be an extra añejo. I, añejo. I think I'm going to I'm going to bottle it when be, when it becomes a like an 18 month añejo, um, and then I'll hopefully I'll fill it with Fortaleza or Cascawin next. So that's beautiful. Uh, so yeah. to be clear, I think the the first pour that we had, I believe, was a six a six year, six year, yeah. And then what we just most what we're recently drinking now is a seven year, essentially. Yeah, right? essentially, it's a seven year. Yeah. So just, this is just for me and my amateurish, uh, impression noses to me seems very similar. Color seems very similar. It it definitely seems to have lost kind of that candied edge. Um, but if you're worried about there being too much wood on this, I think this is still very good. And I, yeah, not, not at all, um, overpowered by the, by the oak. It's for me, it was because I've, I've been sampling it for seven years when it lost for me, when it lost that, that undertone of the cooked agave, I just, I wanted to make sure I got it all out and I don't want to, now I see why I, I gravitate more towards Blanco tequilas now, uh, just because I, I love the natural flavor of, of, of the agave, uh, without any influence on it. Um, and Greg, we had the, the reposado when, when you came to dinner we did. And, you know, it's a very subtle barrel influence on it, but oh my God, it, it, it made for such a great pour. I, I drink this on a regular basis. I just pour it out of the, uh, the barrel and that's my number one go-to now. So I, I say, this is an instance when you're allowed to get high on your own supply. Yes. And I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. Well, Hey, I've got a question then. So for people who are listening to this and for me too, for that matter, I mean, I always feel like Greg is my kind of my personal you know, booze whisperer on, uh, on agave spirits, but I'm curious, what would you suggest for somebody who, cause there is, you know, the mission 1530 bottlings are not available, right. And won't be for some time. Um, but for somebody who wants to try a really good high quality Blanco tequila, um, that essentially would pass muster with your look like kind of the requirements to, reading between the lines. I mean, I think you have some requirements for what you'd consider to be a good tequila. What can somebody in any decent sized city expect to be able to find at a good, a good bottle shop? If, even if they have to do a little bit of looking, what would you recommend? Me or, or Greg? You. Oh, so I find that Fortaleza and Tequila Ocho are more accessible than Cascawin or Siempre Valles. Um, so I would look for, um, Tequila Ocho or Fortaleza, any of their Blancos, you can't go wrong with. Um, 
I, I'm trying to convert as many people over from bourbon to tequila. And I always do that uh, with one of the four producers. The one that they gravitate towards to a lot is actually a high proof from Cascaween, Cascaween 48, mm -hmm. because for some reason, the, the subtle burn that comes from this high proof tequila reminds them about their, the bourbon, but, but the, they, they're, they're starting to get the, the, the true flavor of that cooked agave. And then I slowly bring them up with a reposado, an añejo, and then the extra añejos sort of blow their mind. Um, because now they're, they've transitioned through every expression and now they're like, we like this better than bourbon, like, because they, they've gone through the, the, the history of it. It's funny. There's another, um, another podcast that I listen to quite a bit and it's, they're really cool guys. They've got a, a great energy and that's the uh, whiskey and watches podcast. And they, they usually talk a lot more about watches, but the, maybe two episodes ago, they were, they did a sit down. I don't know if you caught that episode, Greg, where they went to an old, like uh, artisanal small scale production um, bourbon producer in Kentucky, a place called Pogue. And this is not available, you know, on the shelves around here. So I'd never heard of it. It was, it sounded great. But one of the things that came up in the conversation with the guys there was that, yeah, they, um, and I don't remember what the impetus was, but they, there was some reference to an anticipated move, you know, toward people kind of discovering clear spirits and tequila in particular. And the jumping off point would have been, you know, for a lot of these folks, bourbon, but as a lot of the, the really good bourbons are, are hard to find, you know, geographically, depending on where you're located in the States. I mean, we don't have typically a lot of trouble getting Buffalo trace, but I guess back East they do, um, you know, that people, if they start kind of maybe not giving up, that's the wrong word, but if you throw up your hands and, and can't find, you know, the really good, uh, bourbons that you like, maybe you're going to try tequila and this, this would be a good place. This is how it's happening for me. I mean, I'm basically, you know, six months into this and, uh, you know, I want to say it was the, the Fortaleza that got me hooked. Great tequila. That is, that, that's folks, a great gateway tequila. Yeah. I agree. I, 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 you know, Jason already recommended it, but I get that question, you know, a decent amount. And I, in terms of readily available, currently produced, we're not talking about vintage or kind of, you know, out of production stuff, regularly available, completely, you know, arguably top three, it doesn't get much better and you should be able to find it. Like you said, in most major markets. So um, the watches and whiskey, is, it, is that Roman Scharf that you're, referencing from watches and whiskey no it's a whiskey and watches podcast oh. yeah okay I, I, yeah i know there's um a lot of kind of riffs on those two words just the same way as you know beer and right. watches and watches and beer and and beer n like the letter n watches yeah. and you know there's a variety of different feeds and and you know content creators and uh, you know you're all good guys don't worry but um they are i'm just i'm yeah. friendly with roman that's i bought my first rolex off of roman so i thought you were referencing his I think it's watches and whiskey, but, um, yeah. So that's a perfect gotcha. segue though. So, okay. Yeah. Right gotten, on time. We've gotten, we could literally keep going on and I actually would like to, but, and I think we'll circle back a little bit, but let's talk a little bit of watches, Jason. We already know what's on your wrist. We know it was your first sort of, you know, uh, foray into what you would call like a serious watch purchase. Yep. And it's a beautiful, amazing piece. Um, what, how did, how did watches start? How did it start for you? Where, what's the beginning of your journey there? So it started 
at a young age with my father who always wanted a Rolex, but could not justify the price. And I, I would always hear him talk about it and he would buy these fake Rolexes and be so proud of them. From you know, Canal Street? Did he go up to the city? Yeah, he did. <laughs> or in Atlantic City, actually. Okay. Um, and I, I never thought anything about it. And then when I was in college, uh, some of my friends had some nice watches on their wrist. They had the Tag Heuer's. Uh, and I got a, a Tag Heuer. And right after I graduated, um, I was with one of my good my fraternity brothers, and he had a Frank Mueller on. I said, that's a beautiful watch. And he told me what he paid for it. And I was in shock. I said, that's like twice the mortgage that I'm paying. And uh, I was traveling with my ex-wife at the time and we were in the Bahamas and I stopped into a shop and I saw the Blanc Pond in the window and I couldn't take my eyes off of it. And I walked in and it was the most I've ever paid for any piece of jewelry or, or anything else that, that I ever bought for me in my life. And I, I wouldn't take it off my wrist. And then my dad in 2015, uh, got sick and, uh, I wanted him to have a Rolex. Um, so I love the, my first Rolex was the yacht master with the blue face. Gorgeous watch. Yeah. And, uh, I, and I got it through Roman um, through the gray market. Uh, and I, I visited him and he looked at the watch and I said, you know, dad, I want you to have this. And he held his hands out and he said, this is for you to hand down to your son. He's like, I had bought my dad a, a, a career, a tag Heuer Carrera a while ago. And he said, this is the only watch I'll ever need to wear. Um, he said, but I want you to start with the Rolex. And, uh, he kept staring at it because it, it was the first, time he had actually, I put it on his wrist and, and, and he got to wear it. So at that point, I, you know, I'd really fallen in love with Rolex and, uh, the, they hadn't gone, it, it wasn't at that point in 2015, you could still go into a store and buy a Rolex. Um, and, uh, I waited a couple of years and six then whole, I started six whole years ago, right? Gosh. Yeah. 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 Um, how things have changed. Right. But I, you know, I, before I bought my, my, my next Rolex, I, I love glass shoot as well. Um, and I got, uh, one of the glass shoot sport watches, um, for a steal, you know, from an authorized dealer. Uh, I fell in love with that watch, a Hublot I bought along the way. Uh, I also fell in love with Tudor. Um, and I've been fortunate enough that I could acquire these watches. I have a good friend who's an authorized dealer and I think I have more than 10 Rolexes right now that I've been able to acquire through him. So, Nice. Yeah, it's become an addiction to me for me, uh, just like tequila has in my tequila collection. My watch collection has expanded drastically. So, yeah. What's well, the hey, um, What's the most recent pickup? Can you tell us that? Yes, it is the uh, most recent. Would be the white gold uh, blue blue black sub. Wow. I yeah, I mean, you do not see that a whole lot out there. Right. That that was that's one of my you know, unicorn watches because it was, and I didn't think I was going to get it to be honest with you. Um, my AD who is phenomenal, his name is Mitch at Bernie Robbins. If you guys want a, a phenomenal authorized dealer, uh, called me out of the blue and said, I got something for you. 
And I literally stopped everything that I was doing and drove right there and, and picked it up. And I, I haven't taken it off my wrist until uh, actually today, I think, when I switched to the uh, Blanc Pond. That is such a cool presentation of that watch. Um, and I have to say that the white gold or platinum, you know, compared to a yellow gold, I don't hate yellow gold at all, but the, there's just something about white gold that it's just visually is, looks right on a Rolex sport watch. Right. And, and unless you know about watches, people don't know what that is. And it, it's, it's an understated, beautiful piece of art. And I'm comfortable wearing it because unless you know about watches, you're going to think it's a, it's a nice steel watch with a, you know, a blue bezel. That's it. But it's so much more. So that was my most recent purchase. I have to take a break now from yeah. buying watches for a while to recover from that. <laughs> that that's right. Yeah. That's, that's that, uh, yeah. the, the honeymoon period, but also the, Hey, we're going to pump the brakes period too. <laughs> yeah. 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 You can, you can buy a lot of barrels with what that cost. I, I can, but I, you know, I, I have everything on Chrono 24 right now. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, there is no better investment in the world than buying a watch. <laughs> so I ordinarily, I would make fun of you for doing that, but I finally did that myself about 14 or 18 months ago. And um, I'm like, whoa, <laughs> it's, just, it's just fun. It is. It's, it's tracked. It's tracked. Well, I don't like the idea of them being an investment or an investment vehicle, but there's just no getting around it. I mean, and I've, I've been fortunate to have gotten a few good ones on the ground floor. Yeah. It's, and I'm not, I never want to sell these. These are going to be handed down to my son, but oh my God, the, the return on investment is incredible. I mean, they, they, they perform better than anything in the stock market. The minute you walk out of the store with a tutor, I mean, the Tudor Black Bay, um, oh, it's 58? No, wait. Mm-hmm. The, the Tudor yeah. Black Bay 58, yeah. So I wanted to get my son his first watch. Uh, he doesn't want it now. He's wearing his his Apple watch, but I'm going to – I know he's going to gravitate towards this in a little while. But the minute I bought that, you know, I entered it in a Chrono 24, and it was profitable at that point. It, it, it's just – it blows my mind that that something that I love, something that I cherish is actually a good investment. This is a topic I think it's not new, right? I think this has been going, people are talking about this, you know, in small groups, I'm sure it's on podcasts too. So it's, this wouldn't be, you know, a new unique topic idea, but I think a spin on it would be, and I, the reason I bring this up, I had two conversations recently is when the value of something that you actually really do love, like you just said, Jason, goes up to a point where you actually stop feeling comfortable enjoying it and wearing it the way that you would normally. That to me is an interesting wrinkle because all of a sudden, like you said, we don't really treat these as investments, but the reality is some of them and many of them have absolutely done that. And what does that mean? Do you just continue to enjoy it? Do you not? Do you pretend that that doesn't exist? It's really, it's, 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 it's kind of a whole can of worms. I've always been of the mindset that if you're going to buy something, use it. If you're going to buy a nice car, drive it. If you're going to buy a watch, wear it. If you're going to, you know, buy, buy a drink it. clothing, you, you just, I'm not going to buy something that I would be afraid to wear. It would be horrible if, if I ever lost it or something bad happened, but you can't be afraid to enjoy what you love. Life is too short. Yeah. Yeah. Which kind of here, points, here. To, yeah, points to so a lot of the things that I think you do in your life. Um, what you know, Matt and I were talking about this. Curious what some of your thoughts are. You know, Matt and I are you know 
uh, you know, constantly connecting with people, whether it's, you know, in a get togethers or, you know, sometimes on social media, of course, on the podcast, how do you, how do you engage or learn about, you know, what's going on in the watch world? Um, curious, you know, cause not everybody consumes watch content the same way. So how are you doing it? Are you following certain people or, or are you kind of keeping a really good, you know, ongoing conversation with your AD? Like what, how do you enjoy the watch world? So I, I'm very fortunate to have, uh, four partners that absolutely love watches. Um, and last year I was able to gift them each a watch that they loved. So we, we get together and we talk about watches. We follow Hodinkee. Um, I watch Roman's, uh, Instagram and, and Facebook, uh, and YouTube videos. And I just, I, I have on my, um, search bar when interesting articles pop up on watches. Uh, so my, one of my favorite purchases ever is the Snoopy, the, the new Snoopy that Omega came out with. I've had a, the most recent one. Yes. So the minute, the minute that it came out, literally the minute that it was announced, Jake, who's one of my partners in, in my, the businesses that I have, uh, said they just released the new Snoopy. And I had, I called the Omega store at the King of Prussia mall and said, I want one. And they're like, you are so lucky that you called us. And I, it, it hasn't come in yet, but I got the new Snoopy. So by following, by, by having friendships with people that, that have a passion for watches by getting updates from all my favorite, you know, manufacturers by following Hodinkee, you know, these watches are coming out and they're, they're literally sold before they ever hit the market. And I just got really lucky because I literally called that minute. I dropped everything I was doing and called and, and got one. So, yeah. So that's how I, that whole environment I'm in now. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Sometimes good things do happen to good people. Yeah. I got lucky. So, you know, I, the reason I asked this is because there's somebody, you know, David, you know, that we're both are, are, um, you know, quite fond of and, and enjoy a relationship with. And he mentioned something to me a long time ago that sort of stuck with me. And I thought it would be interesting to pose it to you. What parallels, if any, do you see between horology watches and sort of tequila or craft agave spirits? Um, l- let's compare watches and let's compare tequila. For literally hundreds of years, watches were produced in a traditional manner. They were produced by hand. Uh, Each piece was manufactured by hand from generations of families that are in the watchmaking industry or through apprenticeships from people that have had decades of experience. With the advent of the digiconomy, with access to everything through applications and through social media, we now have everything at our fingertips. And obviously Apple did a great job of bringing the iWatch to reality. And once the iWatch was, came to the forefront, Tag Heuer came out with a, a, a digital watch. Bossell came out with a digital watch. Um, Samsung came out with a digital watch. And that's very similar to, so now you're taking a craft industry and you are mass producing it and introducing technologies that never existed before into this very historical, traditional 
watchmaking history. Very much the same way that these mass producers have now brought in machines and chemicals to generate cheaper, quicker, you know, chemically added products to satisfy the masses. Um, and, you know, it's a little different in the watch industry than I think in the tequila industry, but you still have those, those passionate people that love watches that are, I have an iWatch. I never wear it, but I got an iWatch because I wanted to monitor my heart when I work out. But the minute I'm done working out and I haven't even used it in a while, I take it off my wrist and I slap on, you know, one of my watches. And I feel like the watch people are fighting the good fight because they know what quality truly is. And even a newbie that comes in is going to fall in love with, with one of the thousands of brands that are out there because of the look and because of the feel of it. And because it's not a, a digital screen, I feel it's harder for people that get introduced to the tequila industry because their palate, you know, in the United States, we are programmed to love sweet things and salty things and, and things that taste like candy. And these mass producers, very much like cigarette producers, they, they feed, they feed that into their, their product. And so too many people in the tequila industry are getting swayed by these mass producers. But I feel like the traditionalists in the watch world are sticking to their guns. And I'm very happy to see that. So that, so that's my comparison. I could see there being some overlap for sure. I mean, there's, you know, depending on what you're talking about as far as tequila or any spirits, really, there's certain amount of, of hand work and soul that goes into, you know, different offerings. And the same is true of watches, you know, as much as I, as much as I like a brand, say like Omega, um, and I do own a few, they're probably not quite the same amount of like hand attention and, and individual like artisanship as you'd get in just a, a garden variety Grand Seiko. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, one thing that stands out to me too is there's a sort of blend, this marriage of, of, of kind of um, passion and science, you know, to both, to, to each industry, you know, there's obviously when you talk about distilling, there's, there are, there is a science to it, but when you're doing it craft or in really in traditional ways, you might be using your five senses rather than a whole, you know, bevy of instruments, but you know, there is a science to it when the, you know, the, 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 heads and tails are coming off, you know, how long do you cook, et cetera. And, uh, the same thing of course comes to the engineering perspective and components of, of watches. I mean, there's, you know, an obvious science to that, but there's the art to it too, right? There is, there's the aesthetic, there's the emotional response, there's the cultural piece. And so, you know, if either industry, if you want to call it or other field is doing it the right way, you can blend those two together. Um, but unfortunately, like you said, there's an easy way to go kind of, you know, one way or the other without appreciating both aspects of it. Absolutely. Yep, definitely. Well, hey, guys, we're just over an hour. We're going to wind up soon. But yeah, the Jason 76ers, for- the 76ers come on very shortly. And I imagine Jason has plans. So I, we got to be do. careful and mindful of, of tip time here. I'm glad, All I, right. glad I have a couple glasses of bad ombre in me. So. <laughs> There you go. Yeah. It kind of loosens the tongue a little bit. Well, hey, so for people, and there probably are going to be some, at least a few people who want to kind of engage with you and follow the progress of this project, the Mission 1530 TIP, or do you say TIP Mission 1530? Mission, mission 1530 TIP, um, if you're searching for it, it's T, Mission 1530 T period, I period, and then P on Instagram. 
So okay, got any, it. Yeah. Anything well, else that you want to plug to Jason? I know there's a number of people you're working with and kind of you know uh, collaborating with, and people that you really appreciate the work that they do. Absolutely. So obviously the the, the, the first four people that I want to thank are David Soro, who literally helped me create this, uh, Carlos and Fanny Camarena, uh, Guillermo Erickson and, um, Stefano, uh, Davila, uh, Chava and, um, and Ben and, and, and his father, the Rosales family. Um, and, and, you know, I think I got everybody right. Yeah. Uh, um, I think so. Uh, I, I want to thank the tequilas family who have, it's like my second home that have introduced me to great tequilas over the years. Oscar. Um, yes. Um, also L2 brands. So it's, so I, I got back to, I wanted to help a lot of the different um, industries that were affected by COVID. And there is a, a great clothing brand called L2 brands. Um, and they're in Norristown, Pennsylvania. So I chose them for the t-shirts, one that, that Greg has on, and you can't find softer, better quality material than, than L2 brand shirts. Um, and then the bottles, I can't, I can't recall the body bottle manufacturer, but all the bottles are produced in the United States as well. Um, so I, I tried to incorporate as much of the American industry in this project as possible. So I wanted to thank, you know, L2 brands and, and the producers and, and the tequila interchange project for allowing me, and most importantly, the Tequila Interchange Project, for allowing me to to help them through this mission. So I've supported um, the Tequila Interchange Project at, at different occasions over the years, and especially as Jason was releasing Bad Ombre as a not only a, a nod to what he's doing, but as just sort of an impetus to, to continue supporting them. Um, you know, if you're looking for an amazing, you know, charitable uh donation and or a place to, to support what they're doing, find them, uh, online on Instagram and also their, their website. Um, even simple stuff like, uh, Amazon smile, you know, you can identify charities that you want to, um, you know, when you're doing your regular shopping, if you use that and, and send some extra funds their way, but I've got a, an automatic, uh, donation schedule set up with tip right now, um, through my PayPal. And that's a great way to do it as well. And they appreciate it very much. Um, it's a great organization. It's a 501c3 as well. So you get a tax deduction for it. And, um, you know, it's, it's a worthwhile cause, especially if you love tequila, you love agave spirits, or you want to help generations of families uh, in an industry that you love. Well, I think my last particular idea on this would just be to put a bug in your ear, but um, as an outsider, you know, who's not met you before or not talked to you about this. You have a lot of passion for this. You represent very well. Um, I mean, personally, I think this would make, you know, a really good, like, uh, you know, medium format documentary. And when this comes to fruition, seriously, you should keep all the notes and, and go back and, um, you know, I don't know if you could find a, uh, you know, a student filmmaker or somebody to help you with it, but I think it would be a lot of fun and probably a meaning, meaningful way to kind of contribute to what you're trying to do you know, with the I, industry. I, I would watch it. I, I appreciate that. I, I, I had an offer from a, a, a video team that, that helps me with my, my law practice actually, that would be willing to travel with me. So I, I, I would consider it. I obviously have to talk to the producers about it, but it, it would be very cool. I just, I don't like being the center of attention or on camera to be honest with you. So, but if it, if it, 
if it means that it's going to help the, the, the tequila interchange project in the industry, I'm, you know, I'm willing to do it. I just have to think, think a little bit about it. So. We'll make sure your hair and makeup are, are on point. You look good. Yeah. Always, know, but... yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right on, right on. Well, Hey Greg, is there anything you want to add? No, as long as we gave Jason the chance to, to plug everybody, you know, that he could think of, um, you know, follow, we'll be posting along and, and sharing his information as well. Please, uh, you know, engage. If you have questions for him, you know where to find him. And, and hopefully we, we'll, we'll continue to watch and share his progress too, um, because I know we're, we're quite close to it. We feel strongly about it and we appreciate what he's doing. So um, to that, Jason, thank you yeah, so much really. for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it, guys. Salute. Salute, guys. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Don't forget to rate us on your podcast platform of choice. It really does help. You can find us on Instagram at Spirit of Time Podcast and contact us at Spirit of Time Podcast at gmail.com. As always, please drink responsibly. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you.